Thanks for listening to this Waterstone message. Here at Waterstone, our mission is to advance God's kingdom to God's glory. We hope this message challenges and encourages you, and we would love to see you at one of our services on Saturday evenings at 5.30 or Sunday mornings at 9 and 10.30. Let's acknowledge why we're here and what we're about to do with a prayer of invocation as we prepare to hear the Father's voice. I'll be the reader, you be the all. God is present in our gathering. Let us testify together to our desire to know God and be known by him. May these words... Amen. Amen. Several years ago, the American Book Review listed the top 100 opening lines from novels. I'd like to share a few from the top 10 and actually like to see if you can guess what these novels are. These are the opening lines to well-known novels. Are you ready? Got your high school English literature class groove going on? First one, call me Ishmael, Moby Dick. Well done. Next one, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Pride and Prejudice, wow, there's a cornerback here of Jane Austen readers. Well done, Pride and Prejudice. Next one, happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Who knew that? Raise your hand. Holy cow. Well done. That's it. Leo Tolstoy. Have you made it through the whole thing? (laughs) Well done. Next one. It was a bright cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13. What was that? Close, but no. Who? Is it up there? George Orwell. 1984, yeah. You all could have really freaked me out there by answering that. So, last one. I may not make it through. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Anyone? Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens. And I want to throw in a bonus one. Ready? Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four. (laughs) Uh, Who knows it? Harry Potter. All right. Well done. Wow. A reading congregation is what we have. You know, there's something about opening lines. They um, set a mood. They bring an energy from the first sentence. They also entice curiosity, even glimpsing the end of the story at the very beginning. There's something about opening lines. So how's this for an opening line? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Welcome to Love This Book. Are you as excited about this series as I am? We are planning to preach the entire Bible in 2020. Genesis to Revelation. It's going to be massive. We're doing it for one goal. To know God. 
You see, I think sometimes, especially when our culture approaches the Bible, they think it's more like a compendium of various stories like Aesop's fables, and if you read it, you'll get morals and wisdom. That is not what the Bible is for or about. If it were, then it would be about us and what we do. The Bible is not about us and what we do. The Bible is one book about one person proclaiming and demonstrating one thing, the massive, unstoppable, devastating reign of God. The Bible in two sentences. God made the world and everything in it. We broke the world and everything in it. God sent his son to fix everything, save the world, and make all things new. What happens is we get into the Bible, we hit the laws of Leviticus or the dark wars of the judges, and we're like, ah! So one of the values of preaching the Bible in a compressed year is that every week we will be reminded of the big picture. If I could put the big picture in three words, God with us. That's the story. Every week, that's the good news. God wants to be with us now and forever. And he's made all provisions and he's made all plans for God with us. You know, I've shared with you some of my journey over the last 25 years. Some of you might remember, I was raised in a military family and we moved 13 times in the 18 years I lived at home. I was the new student most every fall. And as I got older, that began to be anxious for me. Every year starting over. And I'll never forget, we were moving, I think, from Del Rio, Texas, to Liverpool, New York. I was in the fourth or fifth grade. But small enough, and I could probably still do it in my current stature, but uh, we had a 72 Chrysler Newport driving in the middle of the night I was curled up on the floorboards. Remember floorboards in the old cars? And uh, my dad thought we were all asleep. My mom was asleep. My sister was asleep. I was wide awake, dreading in the pit of my stomach, having to start over as the new kid again. But something happened that got me through, and I'll never forget it. My dad, probably to keep himself awake, was singing. And whenever my dad did anything like that, I, as a young boy, began to really notice. And I'll never forget what he sang. And I've probably heard this song since maybe five times. But it grooved my soul. The course of the song went like this. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see and I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace and he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day, glorious day, that will be. Do you know what it's like to have your father sing over you? Do you know that in the prophets in Zephaniah chapter three, that's the picture that he gives of God singing over us? his heart. Some of you dads, especially those of you with the younger children, you need to remember 
how powerful it is to show your children that they are the joy of your heart. You need to keep singing over them. At least until they're old enough to understand what good singing is. <laughs> then you have to choose your spots. Every week that we gather in 2020, the goal is for us to hear the Father singing over us. Are you ready? You ready to start? Let's begin at the beginning. How's that sound? Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read it, uh, some of it, the, some of the chapter through day 5, because next week we're going to do day 6 and talk about human beings made in the image of God as the pinnacle of creation. So today, the first five days, as I read it, I'm going to try to emphasize some things in the text that I think need emphasized. You see if you catch how this was written. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, say it, day one, the first day. God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. And God called the vault sky. And there was evening, and there was morning, and God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place. And let dry ground appear, and it was so. And God called the dry ground land, and he gathered waters. The waters were called seas, and God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. And the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing seed with seed, fruit with seed in it, according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, and God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and then let them serve as signs to mark sacred times, days, and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser night to govern the night. And he also made the stars. Doesn't that sound like a throw-in line? <laughs> oh, yeah, God made the stars too. Um, God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening... And there was morning, and God said, let the water teem with living creatures and birds, let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky, so God created great creatures of the sea, and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. 
And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the word of the Lord. Quite a story. So we begin at the beginning by understanding what the intent of this story is. When we moderns come to this text, we want to know right away the how. We want to know, was it? 24-hour, literal seven days? Uh, was there a, a theistic evolutionary process that somehow made everything that exists? We want to get to the how. In fact, when we think of earth, we think of this. The fact is, we did not know this until the early 1960s, what the earth looked like. You see, we tend to jump to our modern preconditions and understandings of what all this means. What we need to understand, especially as we go through the Bible in a year, is the most important question to ask when we read the Bible, which is this. What did the original author intend to convey to the original audience? That's where we begin at the beginning. Why was Genesis 1 written? It was not written in a vacuum. You see, Israel was surrounded by other nations, the Canaanites, the Egyptians. In fact, they had just been delivered when the Torah was given by Moses out of the 400-year Egyptian bondage. So there was probably still first or second generations that could remember back to Egypt. So uh, they had these surrounding cultures, and each of these surrounding cultures had a creation story. And you'll remember that the mission of God's people, and by the way, this has not changed Exodus chapter 19, God said, you, Israel, will be my kingdom of priests sent out to connect with the surrounding cultures and show them what God is like and help them get connected to the true God. That's always the mission of God's people, to demonstrate God in the culture. And so Israel takes this creation story into the culture and says, let's have tea and compare what you see in the surrounding cultures, take like the Sumerian creation tale called the uh, Epic of Gilgamesh, you see gods fighting with each other. If I could say it this way in our culture, gods breaking bad. There's violence, there's chaos, there's sex, there's family squabbles, and humans kind of caught in, the, uh, in between all the whims of the gods. That's true in the Babylonian uh, epic of, or uh, Sumerian epic of Gilgamesh. It's true of the, the Babylonian creation story called the uh, Anuma Elish. It was especially true in Egypt, which, again, which a culture that, this was, when you said earth, this is what Egyptians thought. That we live here in the middle with all these gods around us pushing away from each other, uh, inhabiting animals, worshiping the ocean and animals and the sun and the moon. You see, every surrounding culture had their creation story. And Israel was called to take their creation story into the mix and say, let's compare your God and our God. And what you see in Genesis 1 is really none of that. What you see, did you hear it? Stability, structure, goodness, peace. There's no risk there's nothing where God is maneuvering or, or, or trying to compete with anything else. It's just a good, 
creation because of a great God. Here's the first point. When we begin at the beginning of the story of the Bible, we need to understand that the purpose of Genesis was to help us acknowledge how great our God is and share that with our surrounding culture. That's the purpose of Genesis 1. Okay? So, that means two things that are not the purpose of Genesis 1. First, Genesis 1 is not a science manual to tell us how the world was made. It's not scientific language. It's not even scientific structure. If you notice in Genesis 1, there's light before the sun is made. And there's vegetation before the sun is made. Now when you get to Genesis 2, there when the story's told again, it is the natural order. Not that God's bound by any natural order. He made the natural order. But in Genesis 2, it's more of a chronology. In Genesis 1, do you know what Genesis 1 is? It's a poem. It's a song. In fact, Old Testament scholars have tried to find other places in the Bible that compare to Genesis 1 that are as highly structured, highly stylized language as we read together. There's really two other places that compare. Exodus chapter 15 is a song that Miriam wrote and Israel sang after they walked through the Red Sea and went, yippee. If you compare Exodus 15 to Genesis 1, there's a striking contrast. If you compare Genesis 1 to Judges 5, Judges 5 is a song written by a judge in Israel after a great deliverance. Her name was Deborah. She wrote a song and Israel sang. If you compare Judges 5 with Genesis 1, you'll find a, con, a striking comparison together. If you can hear this, Waterstone, here's the point. Genesis 1 is the Father singing over us about what it's like to live with him in his home. That's the purpose of Genesis 1. It's not science. It's not a chronology. It's a song to display the greatness of God in our world. So I want to make just two quick comments and then we'll move on. First, we often want to come to Genesis 1 and ask the how question. How did all this happen? Genesis 1 was not written for the how question. At Waterstone, there are people sitting here who believe in a young earth, strict seven-day creation model. And that's good. And there are others of us here who believe that the world came into being by God using an evolutionary model to bring the world into existence. And that's good. There's a wide spectrum. It's a big tent. Hear me. This is not a salvation issue. So all views are welcome. Let's have tea and talk. And we will practice humility and respect with one another. But my point is that Genesis 1 is not science or chronology. It's a stunning piece of theological art. That's what Genesis 1 is. Okay? Second thing. I personally believe it's a great act of worship to pursue your convictions in this area. How do you think God made the world? And I think in pursuing that, that's just worship and trying to figure it out. And my own views have changed over the 40 plus years I've been a believer. 
but let me give you some resources so that you can worship and create your convictions about creation. First, I would direct you to a great website called biologos.org. Biologos was started by a man, you may have heard of him, named Francis Collins, who is the director of the Human Genome Project, as well as the director of the National Institute for Health. He's one of the world's massive scientists and a strong believer, and one I think we look to to help us integrate, and this is my own personal view between faith and science, is that they're partners. They integrate. In fact, people come and they want to make this you know, a disconnect. If you believe in science, you can't believe in God. If you believe in God, you can't believe in science. That's wrong. That's not it. Faith and science are opposites in the way that my pointer finger and my thumb are opposites. You can't get a grip on anything without both of them. Science matters, and all truth is God's truth. But as Robert Jastrow, the founder of the Goddard Institute for Space Studies, an atheist, once said, that every atheist astronomer's bad dream is to get to the top of the mountain in science and find that the theologians are there laughing and been there for centuries. <laughs> both are welcome and both partner together. So Francis Collins, a particular article, if you wanna pull out your phones, take a picture of this so that you can worship, feel free. Creation, Evolution, and the Christian Layperson by Tim Keller is a great article. Second, if you want to read more about the surrounding cultures of Genesis 1, John Walton's Lost World of Genesis 1. John Walton teaches at Wheaton College in Illinois. Third, American Scientific Affiliation is a gathering of Christian scientists across the country who make their living from science, but are practicing Christians and they've integrated in their various ways faith, and science. There's a huge amount of resources on that page. And in fact, our own Annabelle Pratt, a couple years ago at the School of Mines, uh, I went to hear her speak, and she was a plenary speaker for the American Scientific Affiliation. Annabelle Pratt is the principal engineer for NREL, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Golden. She is living science every day as a Christian. And I'm not surprising her with this. She has said she'd be willing to meet with any of you for coffee. You pay. She talks. <laughs> and if you want to talk about what it's like to be a practicing scientist, living in that world as a Christian, she has some great things to share. Have coffee with Annabelle. Email me and I can connect you. The other guy you need to talk to is Dave Long. Our own Dave Long has been teaching, I think, for 15 years across the street at Dakota Ridge, teaches biology. He is one of the most articulate people I've ever heard talk about the relationship of faith and science, and he too is doing it for a living. So get together. It'd be worth your time. Get together with Dave, uh, with Annabelle. All right. That's where we start at the beginning what kind of literature is Genesis and what was its purpose? Now let's get inside of the chapter and see what it says. Genesis chapter one, the word God, the name, is used 35 times. 30, count them, 35 times. In other words, God is the subject. He's the subject of all the verbs. God saw, God blessed, God made, God formed, God created. Ah. Oh, God created. 15 times it says God created. And do you know that that verb in the Hebrew, it's bara. In the Bible, Genesis 1 on, the, every time it's used, God is always the subject. Do you understand? Human beings can make and they can form, but we cannot create. Only God 
creates. Only God speaks new from nothing. Only God brings light from dark. Only God brings order to chaos. Only God brings life to dust. Only God creates. He is before time. He has no equal. His word is supreme. Israel, what you're supposed to do is go into your culture, and when people say, who is God, your answer is, God creates, and no one else creates. Only God is God, and he's the subject of every sentence. By the way, he's also the verb in every sentence. His name is I am, as we sang this morning. He's the subject and the verb of life. He is life itself. We are dependent and fragile. He is inexhaustible life, and he creates, which makes us the object. God is the subject. We are the object. Creation shouts sovereignty that God has made everything there is, which means that our origins are found in him, that our accountability is found to him, that our ownership is found by him. When we say God is creator, it means we owe everything we are and have to him. To him. Paul wrote in Romans 11, for of him and through him and to him are all things. You know, it's why the second commandment in Exodus chapter 20 is to not have any graven images. What's that mean? That means you don't worship anything that was made. Why? Because it's a logical absurdity to worship something that was made instead of the maker. It'd be like going to the Denver Art Museum and seeing the Monet exposition and writing a thank you note to the paintings. It's absurd. The only proper response when we get a sense of what it means that God created us, owns us, and we're accountable to him, he's the king, the only proper response is worship. And let's understand what it means from Psalm 95. Would you read this together with me out loud? Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Because God is creator and made everything that is, we are to be Walking thank you notes to God every hour of our lives, acknowledging his proper place as the maker of all. So, Genesis 1 is literature given to reach cultures about the greatness of God. When you actually get into the chapter, God is the subject. We are the object. So how do we respond? Three things. Because God is the maker of all things, first of all, it means creation is good. Now, we need to be reminded of how radical this is. Again, in the surrounding cultures, when Jesus preached creation when he was with us, the surrounding Greco-Roman culture viewed the physical part of existence. They viewed the human body as bad. 
something to be escaped. It's a prison. We're walking in a prison with the ailments and the struggles of life in this body. So the best way is to get rid of the body somehow. By the way, you find this in contemporary culture in the Eastern religions that say the goal of life is what? Nirvana. And even if you use substances to help, escape the prison that the body is. How radically different is Christianity that comes and says, no, the body is good. Creation is good. God made it. And this is demonstrated most significantly by the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And made like him, like him we rise. You know what that means? That means we will live forever with God in his home, in a physical body, in a physical existence. Yes! It's good. The body is good. The physical life is good. I get ramped up about this. When Jesus, when he was with us in John chapter two, do you remember his first miracle? Turning the water to wine. His mother nagged him, Jesus, Yeshua. Now these are our friends. And you know what? A Jewish mother never makes a command. They just put the words of course in the sentence and it becomes a command. Of course you will change the water to wine. Okay, mom. And Jesus changes the water. He lifts a drooping reception with better booze. Why? Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of the best of meats and the finest of wines. What Jesus was saying in this miracle is, I am the maker of all things, and I am the one who's going to, at the end of time, have an ultimate feast, and you are invited to that feast, and we'll have the best wine and the best food. What Jesus is saying there is that every time now that you enjoy a great kiss or a good meal or a sunset walk, that's just a hazy hint of your coming destiny. The maker of all things is inviting you to the banquet now through these dimly lit experiences we get of how beautifully good his creation is. Can I ask you something? Are you an expert at enjoyment? Do you make the time? I mean, we live in Colorado for crying out loud. Martin Luther said, the proof of the existence of God is a good beer. That's pretty good. My own personal view is that the proof of the existence of God is sweet corn in the summer. I mean, I gotta be honest, the reason I have a goatee is in the summer to eat sweet corn and you don't take a shower, the taste lasts for days. (laughs) There is nothing better than sweet corn. How about you? Are you an expert in enjoyment? God's creation is good and he wants to share it with you. Second thing you need to know about creation, because he made everything, creation's finite. We don't worship a mother earth or anything in the earth. In fact, we've learned, I think most of us in the room have lived long enough to learn that when we worship something made, even for good purposes like work, like money, like sex, like power, when you begin to ask those things, to give your heart satisfaction, and they don't give satisfaction, so you need more and more and more. We know what that's called, right? Addiction, slavery. 
We know that when we worship something made, it causes us to be unmade. And so what the Genesis story reminds us is that if you've got the subject of all things, if you've got God, listen, you've got enough. And if you lose one of those things, money, power, sex, but you've got God, you'll be okay. You will be okay. Even if you lose a made thing. Creation is finite. So, it's good, it's finite, and lastly, it's rest. Notice how the song ends. The heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array, and by the seventh day God had finished the work he'd been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work, and then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, set apart, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. What's missing? Our highly stylized structure, and it was evening, and it was morning, day seven. It's not said on day seven. Why? Because I believe, though Jesus calls his father a worker in John 5, and though God is still very much running the world, or we would be disintegrated, the fact is that there's no end of the seventh day because God wants us to come to his house and enjoy rest. The rest never stops. It's God inviting us to his house that satisfies our heart. And when you find that, you find rest. Jan and I bought our house in 2008. We live right across the parking lot here to the east and there's our house. And when we walked in, we were not asking the realtor or anyone else these questions. Where did the wood frames come from? If it is wood frames. Where, where did the carpet come from? How about the bathroom fixtures? We were not really interested in whether the developer lived in the neighborhood. We were not asking material origin questions. Genesis 1 is not a house story how the house came to be. Genesis 1 is a home story. No, what happened is Jen and I walked into this house and it was empty and void. And she, thinking of our youngest son, Luke, who's an early riser, saw the sun came up first on the east side of the house. And so she said, put the bedroom in that, the bed in that bedroom. And it was so. And then we did Ethan, and then we did us. Of course, we get the big room with the bathroom, and then we said, here's where our dining room table, where we'll eat together. We put the TV downstairs. We'll watch in the family room downstairs. Our living room's gonna be where we entertain people. You see, what we did, and our questions were, what makes a house a home? Genesis 1 is God inviting you into his home and how the home works I mean, think about it. If you read Genesis 1, what's it about? Food, weather, and marking time. The fabric of human existence. This is how the world works. And if you come to our house, it will be your home. The problem is, we didn't really like the house that God built way back when and since. We said, I want to build my own house, do my own things, my own way. And we rejected God. But then God sent his son in our place for our sins to live the life we should have lived. 
to die the death we should have died. And because Jesus lived the life we should have did, when he was baptized, the father spoke a benediction over his son. The first time the father spoke since the garden, he said, this is my son. In him, I am so pleased. And the father is singing over his son. And you see, when we decide that we can't do it on our own, but we want to come home to the true God through his son, Jesus Christ, because he's lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died. When we come to him, he gives us the benediction. You are my beloved daughter. In you, I am well pleased. You are my son. In you, I am well pleased. You see, Jesus took the malediction, the curse of sin, so that we could get the benediction that he deserved. And when you, I mean, I think we struggle our whole lives for a benediction, don't we? We want to know that we're the delight of someone's eyes. We want to know that my presence in your life makes you want to be a better person. We, we want to be treasured. And we'll give anything to be treasured. And when Jesus says, you come to my house, here's the benediction in you. I am well pleased. Today, we're going to end with communion, and we're calling it the table of rest. And when you come to this table today, my prayer is that you hear the benediction of our good Father over you. In you, I am well pleased. Here's how you get it. Jesus told us in Matthew 11. Here's how we come to the table. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It doesn't matter if you've walked with Christ for decades. Come and hear the benediction again today at his table. You are my daughter. I am so pleased with you. You are my son. You're my beloved. Or if you're here and you're checking out Christianity and you've never taken communion before, the invitation for you is to come and find rest for your souls and give your life to Jesus where rest is found. I'd invite the servers into place. Here's the invitation from Jesus himself. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it. He said, this is my body, broken for you. As often as you eat it, remember me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup represents my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, remember me. We have a few moments of rest and space for you to talk to Jesus. Whatever you want to say to him, find rest in him. And then when you're ready, come to a station. There's gluten-free in the back. Tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup. Take it anywhere in the room. Find rest for your soul today.